to Up and to the Right, our weekly Twitter spaces where we discuss investing, personal finance, and really any idea that helps us better understand the world of money. Today we are doing an Ask Us Anything, where you will get to Ask Us Anything. But first, let's do a quick intro around the room, introduce our speakers, and first let's head down to Austin to Roger. Thank you so much, Jesse. So my name is Roger, uh, at Upshot Wealth here on Twitter. And I also love talking money and finance. Um, my biggest things that I like to talk about are 401k, HSAs, and really just help providing people insights on how to build financial independence. Excellent. Thank you, Roger. Let's stay there in Texas. Let's go to Andy. Hey, everybody. My name's Andy. I am um, oh, hi Andy on Twitter and your friend Andy on uh, YouTube where I talk about um, money, investing, uh, crypto, making money online. Um, a lot of my content is around, uh, at least on Twitter, on uh, crypto and making money online. I like talking those topics. Uh, yeah, so all things money, I am game to talk about. Thanks, Andy. Let's head out to coastal Nevada. Adam, you're next. It's <laughs> <laughs> a beachfront out here. Uh, so guys, uh, my name's Adam. I started up here on Twitter documenting our kind of debt payoff journey. And now that we've gotten that cleared off, it's on the flip side, the more fun, the investing, some budgeting skills, tactics, stuff like that. Um, so if you want to learn some little tips and tricks, trips, tricks, that's what I put out there. Excellent. I'll take the tricks, tips, and trips, Adam. I'll take a trip. Um, let's go north of the border. Brandon, you're next. Hello. So I have a blog called Rinky Do Finance. I'm I cover personal finance from a very general perspective. Uh, my approach is to bring these topics to the masses. So I write very approachable content. But that's my goal, anyways. Excellent. Thank you, Brandon. Uh, we're gonna skip down. Let's go across Lake Erie. Let's go to Ohio. Dave. Hi, uh, everybody. My name is uh, Dave. Uh, you. My handle here is Uncommon Yield. Um, I like to look at money a little bit differently. Uh, look at some ways to maybe grow your wealth more than just investing in index funds. You know, index funds are great, but there's a lot of other things you can do, like selling options and getting in crypto and um, using margin in a way that's safe and can really expand your wealth. So if that stuff is interesting to you, give me a follow. Cool. Unique views, uncommon views from Dave. Stay in Appalachia. You know who's next. Shadow, go ahead. <laughs> Appalachia. We'll get that right, though. Uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, children of all ages. Uh, my name is Shadow. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Shadow Rents. Uh, I'm the guy socialists hate, but Adam's mom secretly follows. Uh, I buy real, tangible assets. I have a real estate uh, rental portfolio of over $1.2 million. And uh, unlike many others, I do not believe in imaginary cryptocurrencies. Thank you, Shadow. And uh, my name is Jesse Kramer at Best Interest underscore JC. I run a blog, a podcast, 
and a financial advisor newsletter that all falls under the umbrella of the best interest. I'm the guy who Shadow hates in public but loves in the DMs. And today is an Ask Us Anything, where you guys really get to make this happen by sending us questions in the DMs or requesting microphone access. access. Please ask away. Your questions will make this show happen. Um, to start, I know we had a couple questions that were sent to us ahead of time, and I thought we could maybe start with one of those. Uh, one of them is from Cozy Nest Egg, and it was a Bitcoin question, so I figured we could start with a couple of the Bitcoin fans in this group. Uh, so the question is directed at Andy, but feel free, anyone else can, can answer. The question is that, uh, Andy, you mentioned in our Bitcoin episode that you believe that the Bitcoin price will eventually stabilize. Do you see that stabilization as a flat plateau, or is it simply a decrease in volatility with continued price appreciation? Uh, that would be option B. Um, I mean, I don't know. No one knows. But uh, my, my, my best thesis uh, would be that at some point, once critical mass has been hit, uh, volatility will, um, will basically be non-existent when you compare it to uh, how it looks today with the ups and downs we currently see. Uh, so somewhat of a plateau, but with an upward trajectory, um, if it uh, does what it's supposed to do. Uh, and I think that that, um, you know, at that point, most of the uh, the fun and upside that we're finding now will be uh, gone, but it'll still be a, uh, at that point, it'll be more of a, I guess, substantial store of wealth, uh, whereas now it's more of an asymmetric um, uh, bet. Excellent. Thank you, Andy. Anyone else in the group have any thoughts on the question? I'm waiting for Shadow to say that he thinks it'll stabilize at zero dollars. <laughs> I, in fact, have nothing to say because I respect Andy greatly. Oh, wow. Look at that. A rare showing from Shadow this time. Oh, good. I'm glad we got a good answer on that question. Thank you, Andy. And, and while we're talking to Shadow, Shadow, we got a couple questions directed at you. Um, let's do this one first. So, Shadow, what is your average net profit per month per unit? And as a follow-on, do you use a property manager? And if so, how much do you pay them to manage your unit? Fantastic questions. So currently I am netting about $250 to $300 per month per unit. And uh, I do, in fact, have a property manager. And the national average is 8 to 10% of gross rent is what you're paying out to your property manager. And what that means is if they're not um, collecting rent on a unit, they don't get paid. So 8 to 10% of, of that gross rent is, is kind of the, the national norm. And I actually pay 10% because I have a fantastic property manager and I don't want to lose her. Excellent. And I, I'm sorry, Shadow, I didn't hear there. Do you mind sharing what your net profit per month per unit is? And if, if you said it, I'm doing 10 things at once. I apologize if I missed it. Jesse, I need I'm you to sorry, pay attention, man. honey. And I, in fact, do uh, net about 250 to $300 per month per See, We're unit. just reinforcing right there. That's all that is. We want to reinforce with the hard numbers. I'm giving my critics a lot of fodder here by, by not paying attention. Uh, here's one, here's one for the group. This is a question from Dante Weigel. So Dante asks, well, I assume it's a question. 
written as a statement, but it's REITs versus rental property. So Shadow, I have a feeling we know where you stand on that argument. So maybe we can start somewhere else. Does anyone have any strong opinions on, on REITs versus rental properties? I mean, I, this is Dave. Dave, I, I think uh, REITs are a great uh, investment, especially if uh, a great investment class, especially if you don't have a significant um, chunk to put down on, on a singular rental property. Uh, it's a great place to maybe save up to maybe buy a rental property. Uh, since 2000, they've performed really, really well. I'll dig through my um, previous content, but I think I, I tweeted out in the past, like they, they, they've been the best performing asset class since 2000. Um, and that really makes sense in this low interest rate environment, right? So as interest rates get cut, property values go up because a lot of times properties tied to what you can actually buy it for um, using, using leverage. So um, I think they're a great asset class. Are they as good as and offer all the same benefits as real estate? No, they don't have the same tax advantages. Um, but are they a good asset class? And do I think um, they belong in just about everybody's portfolio? I, I personally do. Does anybody not like like REITs? No, no I was just going to add to what you're saying. I, I just think it's a nice way to like diversify a little bit, right? Especially if you can buy a, like a, a property, especially with how expensive properties are this year, right? Like it gives you an option to do something a little different. Um, yeah, I think it's great also to get into commercial real estate as well. You know, most people, even those who invest in residential real estate, can't necessarily afford to get into the commercial real estate space. And REITs are a really fantastic way to do that. So I, I don't think it has to be either or. I think you can own, you know, a residential um property and still invest in commercial REITs. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I don't think it's a, hey guys, something, a binary thing. Oh, hello. Yeah, and some something I do is is if I have, you know, money kind of sitting waiting to put on a down payment for a house, instead of it sitting in a bank collecting nothing, a lot of times I'll even put it in a, a REIT just to kind of hold it down and let it grow until I'm ready for the next down payment. And what I was going to say is, I don't, yeah, I talking what uh, Brandon just said, I don't think it's binary to choose one or the other. Uh, also, there's just uh, so many cool options when it comes to uh, REITs. Uh, I mean, there's everything you can get through your standard uh, brokerage or whatever, but then there's some really cool models like, I don't know what if y'all are fans of or know much about uh, Fundrise, but uh, that's something that's really piqued my interest. And I like uh, stuff like that where you, you can actually see the... Um, the properties, commercial and uh, residential that you're uh, investing uh, in directly is pretty cool. Out of curiosity, um, do any of you guys, if you do own REITs, I mean, how much of your portfolio is comprised of, of those REITs? Uh, I have about 10%. You know, so I'm, I'm a, you followed me for any length of time. I, I really dislike bonds right now. They're a really terrible investment. Um, so I, I, I use REITs and some other stuff as, as a proxy for, um, for for bonds. Gotcha. Thanks, Dave. Um, I think we do have, well, quick reminder to everybody listening in, please you know, DM us your questions or, or if we recognize you, if we know you and we've seen you here before, feel free to request microphone access. No offense to new folks we've just had, you know, trolls in the past so we might not give you mic access but send us a dm send us your question and i think we actually do have a question uh, uncommon yield you said you had a question do you want to take this one 
Yeah, so this is kind of a little bit of a riff off of that tweet that you had. I think it was earlier this week, Jesse, about insurance, you know, and like what kind of what that that break even point is, and like what what does it look like? So, for 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 you know, how much insurance is is too much insurance, and maybe we can, I don't know, maybe we can by talk with like life insurance. Like, what does that look like for you guys? Like, what's the what does that mean? Is that something you guys have considered or um, or yeah. I, I can chime in here a little bit. So my thought process was, so I, I, we did, we did a, um, so me and my wife, when we got married, we did a, a, a term, a term, uh, I think it was a 20 year uh, term life, um, about like 300 K. And the whole thought process behind it was really, um, it wasn't, it wasn't like a policy to get rich from per se. It was more of a policy to, if something happened, you're at least having enough money to get someone by, whether that means, for example, like owning owning a home outright, right? Or um, just simplifying the hardship that comes with losing someone, right? Especially uh, your significant other. So really, our thought process in becoming life insurance was, wasn't about like becoming rich from it, it was more not becoming um, like paralyzed from it. Buying you some time, effectively. Yeah, I mean, a couple quick thoughts I have on insurance, life insurance, Dave. U.S. specifically about life insurance. I don't have any right now, namely because I don't have any kids right now. But um, might be getting married in the near future. Might be having kids soon after that, and it's certainly going to be right at the top of the priority list. But a couple great thoughts and quotes that I like about insurance. One is from Ben Carlson, who many of you are probably familiar with Ben Carlson. He's fairly famous in this space. He wrote that uh, insurance doesn't build wealth, it protects wealth. So as long as you're thinking about insurance with that mindset, I think you're probably on the right path. And then the second one is from, from the tweet that Dave mentioned earlier this week, which is I was talking to someone who, paraphrasing what they said, they said, yeah, I I know I might be spending a little too much on insurance or I know in the long run insurance loses me money because I'm throwing this middleman in there, the insurance company, but insurance lets me sleep at night. And I kind of stopped him and said like, whoa, well, if, if it's letting you sleep at night, then that sounds like a terrific investment to me. So that's really what insurance is, right? It's this tool that, that lowers our risk profile, that helps us psychologically and uh, it might not be optimizing your finances in a, in a perfect spreadsheet world, but it's where that psychological aspect of finance comes into play. Any other thoughts on insurance? Otherwise, we do have a question uh, in the DMs. I, I got a question as well, Jesse, um, after yours. Okay. Okay. Cool, cool. Well, well, we'll start with this one, and because uh, I know we have some fiery opinions on it, I think. So this is from uh, Grow with Clint. Hey, Clint, thanks for the question. Clint is wondering what our various takes are on debt and how debt can be used to contribute to your wealth. Maybe we can quickly just go around the room and talk about our willingness to take on debt and possibly apply a, a dollar value to it if, if you feel comfortable with you know, how much debt you've been willing to take on in order to grow your wealth. Um, Shadow, I feel like you're a pretty good person to start with, you know, leverage in the real estate world. What are your thoughts on debt? 
Yeah, I'm not going to get uh, deep into this so you, everybody can have a chance to answer, but I love debt. If someone offered me $10 million tomorrow at a 3 or 4% interest, I would take it twice without asking any uh, questions. Huge believer in it. Um, debt has built my wealth dr- drastically and a uh, big believer. Uh, as long as you do it smart and correctly and don't put yourself in a bad situation with high interest rates, uh, it can it can make you millions. Excellent. Um, Adam, let's go to you next because you've got a great debt story. What are your thoughts on, on leveraging debt? Yeah, so, I mean, for us, it's we when I first started get, or joining on Twitter, I was part of the anti-debt, never-debt gang, which, I mean, we still to this day don't have any since we paid it off. Um, kind of like what Shadow was saying, it really depends on what type of debt. I mean, I know real estate debt is super, you know, super popular one. Um, I just think kind of, at least for us, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense just because one, we don't have a primary home and that's kind of our first uh, order of operations with us. But, you know, if you're doing it smartly, you're getting a decent interest rate. You're not overextending yourself and just, you know, trying to acquire as much as you can without having any you know, safeties in place or, you know, whether it be emergency fund, any other type of reserves, you know, it can be done well. And, and there's a lot of people here that, you know, leverage it fine, well and, you know, make a lot of money like Shadow who, uh, does it through real estate um but just personally for us right now it's it's just not in our situation or in our in our plan within the next year or two but as i've spent more time on twitter that's kind of one of the things that started to adjust at least in my mind is kind of the willingness to take on a little more risk however with the caveat i still believe like psychology of money is important and or crucial and so for us too i know at least myself in particular i'm still kind of getting over that psychological scar of where we were, you know, just a little bit over a year ago, but definitely not something I'm ruling out for the future. Thanks, Adam. Yeah. Um, One key thing I think Shadow mentioned was, you know, he would take $10 million if it was at three or 4%. And that that interest rate plays such a huge role. Um, Before we go on to maybe the question that Roger has in his DMs, do any of you guys have any uh, thoughts you want to chime in on, on utilizing debt? Yeah, I'll take a little bit of a different approach because yeah. I think, um, especially from Shadow's uh, perspective, like he he would use debt to buy, you know, appreciating assets. I, you know, my only real experience with debt is that I have a car loan, so I had I had the option to pay cash or finance the car, and I chose the car loan just because, even though it's a depreciating asset, I can leave that money invested and make much more than I would save on interest by paying in cash. So, I think. You know, as long as the interest rate is low enough and you can afford the thing that you're buying, I'm not even against, you know, things like car loans and that sort of, that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah, this is Dave. Just like one last quote, like comment on it. I think you know, debt is really bad when you don't have assets to back it up. So when your net worth is negative, I think it feels really bad. But when your net worth is positive and your assets are, five, six, seven, eight, nine times the amount of debt that you have. It really isn't that big a deal. You know, like one of the guys that uh, our friends with on here is um, dividend farmer. And he's like, you know, if it's one of the things that he we've talked about in the DMs, he's like, if I can pay it off with a click of a button, it's really not debt. It's, it really doesn't, it doesn't bother me, you know, like that. So I think having that, once you have enough of uh, enough assets, uh, a decent emergency fund, and you've set yourself up from a, from a liquid asset position, I think it's a lot less scary to, to leverage it and use it in an intelligent way. Right. Yeah, I, I, 
Sorry, go ahead, Andy. Oh, you can go ahead, Roger. I was just going to say, I, I think the, the issue with debt in general or leverage is that people tend to get impatient uh, on, for example, building their wealth. It takes time. And sometimes I think that they might over leverage a situation because they see like, oh, this is a great opportunity. If everything works out well, I'll be in good shape. But if it doesn't, you might not be in the best shape. And sometimes people are like, well, I, I, I'm just going to take a chance right here because I can, you know, overall it makes sense, but you're just over leveraging yourself. And I think that's where people get themselves in kind of hot water because of that. For example, like like for me, like um, I could leverage, for example, my primary home, right? And it's just like, for me, that's just one that I won't do, you know? Um, but that just, I think because I'm, I'm more conservative in that aspect of it, but um some people are not. Some people are like, you know, if I can leverage that, I will. So it just risk tolerance really plays a factor, and um, how and how the people are willing to go. Yeah, and jumping onto the debt train here, uh, I definitely came into um, you know financial literacy uh, at first with the whole all debt is bad, and then it kind of shifted into no, well, some debt is good debt, some other debt is bad debt. Uh, that whole mindset, and then it kind of eventually evolved to where I'm at now, where I don't believe that is good or bad. I believe it's just completely what you do with it uh, that determines whether it's good or bad. Um, and kind of my whole thought on it is, you know, there's not a um, there's not a you know a wealthy person out there who, if you offered them, you know, uh, a huge amount of um, uh, of loanable money at an extremely low interest rate and they had some asset or some investment in mind that they knew was going to far outweigh uh, and beat uh, that interest rate that you know that wouldn't take that um, so i kind of view everything the same way is there any way i can accelerate my investments or my approach to finance um, with how i use debt whether that's paying it off uh, not as quick or whether that's taking out um, money and then using it somewhere else where i know it's going to perform uh, better than what i have to pay in interest Hey, Andy, if I offered you a quarter million dollars at a loan of 3% for 30 years for your crypto investments only, would you take it? Yeah, definitely. Interesting. Appreciate that. It's on the record. Uh, and, you know, I don't want to get, <laughs> I don't want to go too much into the detail here because we've been talking about it for a while, but I actually, uh, have I, I put my money where my mouth is on that one? Cool. I love the question, Shadow, and I love the the, ander, the answer, Andy. Um, I know you guys had you guys you've been messaging me, so you have some people in your DMs who are uh, who have some questions. Roger, do you wanna do you wanna go next? Sure. So uh, Richie Rich uh, DM me a question on basically to all the guys on. Uh, Here's the question. I have a question to the guys on how they go about personal finance automation and any tools, apps used in doing this. I can speak real quickly, Richie. I automate 401k, Roth IRA, HSA, taxable brokerage. Every month, money goes in automatically and money buys index funds automatically. What I don't do that some other people do is I do not automate my budget. I use YNAB, the app, could hook it up to Fidelity and I could hook it up to my bank and automate automate everything, but I choose not to 
One, for like a little bit of security, but mainly it's so that I have to go in and relive all of those expenses a second time. And now, you know, when I'm not feeling the high of being inside the shopping mall or being on Amazon, I have to look at that purchase and say, oh, shit, I spent 70 bucks on some shitty little item. Now I kind of regret it. If it was automatically hooked up, that payment would just go into my budget and I would never see it again. But I have to relive those things. And I found that it really helps me. So that's my answer. Yeah, and I basically do the same thing Jesse does, except uh, I use YNAB and love YNAB and highly recommend YNAB. A bit of a steep learning curve, but it is a great way to view your money. Um, I have everything uh, plugged in automatically, so it pulls everything, but I still have to manually categorize and accept every single transaction. So I see everything. It's just I don't have to manually enter the, the amount and everything like that. Um, but yeah, all the, if you aren't, if your investments are automated every month where you're automatically, uh, transferring that money to invest, um, you know, your Roth IRA, your brokerage account, your 401k, whatever, or most, most importantly, you know, dollar cost averaging into some Bitcoin, uh, you are missing out big time. So I take the same approach as, um, Andy and Jesse, when it comes to automating the investments. I'm a little different is I automate the budgeting part. So I don't really look at categories. I just look very holistically at you know, how much of my discretionary budget is left throughout the month. And as long as I don't go over that number, I don't really pay attention to the individual categories. That's where I differ. I am pretty much the same as Jesse and Andy as far as like, well, all you guys with regards to the investing aspect of it. I also use YNAB. Um, I definitely... Uh, have a lot of categories in my YNAB personally. What I like to do is I like to see where uh, what I love about YNAB for me is I like to see where I'm leaking money, essentially. Right? And and just have an idea of where where is money going like more at a mi uh, micro level. Um, so I, I like to do that with that. Um, I also in my YNAB, I don't put anything regarding like my investments. Like, for example, I do personal capital for all that stuff. Um, for the YNAB, I, I strictly just kind of keep it to like the credit cards I use and, and the, the bank accounts I use and just looking at that, um, at those pieces. This is Dave. I, I mean, I, I automate uh, most of my investments, dollar cost average in, either like when I get paid. Um, I automate a lot of my bills to get paid. So I put most of my stuff on credit cards to get paid off every month. Or margin limits get paid off like over time that, that I pull out for different things to get paid off progressively. Um, I use Mint um, to, to track all of my expenses. So I just log in and I check it every day. Just, you know, I get, I get to work and usually I just check it first thing for just a couple minutes and make sure all the transactions make sense and categorize them. Um, and then I, I do a, a, a balance sheet um, and a cash flow statement um, every month, like personally. So there's a, a, a psychological like concept called hot cognition. So I think this is what a lot of the guys are doing in YNAB. And, you know, there's a lot of benefits to automating, but when you actually like put in numbers or when you actually like, and you, and you see it, it, something happens differently in your brain. Um, so I think that's some of that manual component is really important um, personally, like for, for me to actually see it and understand it. So, so that's how I do it. So I, Automate bills, automate like everything else. I, I do my own balance sheet and cash flow statement. 
And so for us, it's, you know, similar to what some of the other guys said, 401k, HSA, those are all automatic. Um, the one thing for us with the budget, we're a little old school. We still use a Google Sheet. So not only do we have to manually input it, we have to have the Google Sheet and the Chase open and kind of pull the transactions and make sure they go into the buckets. That's like uh, doing the doing it the hard way on steroids, <laughs> moving over from one thing to another. But we still, I ha- we use Mint. But for when we're actually balancing the budget and making sure everything goes where it needs to be at um, doing the Google Sheet. And when it comes to like the Roth IRA and any uh, brokerage account investments, Bitcoin and stuff, just because the situation we're in right now where we're paying for the wedding or paying for our wedding in November, we can't really have everything automated because it's kind of different expenses popping up at different times. So those are right now we have to kind of manually go through and um, contribute to those investments. Cool. Great question. Thanks for the question. Great answers, guys. Uh, real quick, thank you all listening. I see some really familiar faces out there listening, some folks that we interact with on a regular basis. And uh, if we don't know you and you're new, welcome. Thank you for being here. Please, if you like this content, give us a follow. Come back next week. All that good stuff. Thank you, guys. Uh, for next question, Dave, you mentioned that you had a question in your DMs. Is that right? Oh, I already brought it up. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Uh, how, Shadow, did you have one? Yeah, I had a question about DMs. Do you guys care if I read it real quick? Go for it. All right, so this question is from a Mrs. Shoop, and it says, Thanks for taking my question. Uh, since this is an AMA, I figured I would take a different route than uh, a finance question. So she goes on to say, uh, I understand if you are commies from the Great White North and others are liberals from areas like Austin, but real men used to fight for a living. So if you had to fight either one horse-sized duck or ten duck-sized horses to the death, which would you pick and why? And I think we should go around the room and uh, answer this. I would would ride my moose. I would ride my moose and just destroy, destroy whatever was there. <laughs> I don't see what the laughter is about, guys. Uh, who's who's next? I would put myself out of my misery and take on the horse-sized duck. duck. Go straight for the beak. I don't care if it's eight feet tall. I I also vote for the. Uh horse-sized duck based on I, I want to try to get on that thing and ride it. One horse-sized duck's got, you got one heart to take out, take down, so I'll go take one thing on instead of multiple. Yeah, I'm thinking if there's ten duck-sized horses, I could kick those away. I don't know that I could kick away a, a horse-sized duck. But you could tame it, Shadow. You could ride it and tame it. Shadow, think of how quickly you could check on all your properties if you were riding on the back of a horse-sized duck. Basically a Pegasus. Good idea. I might try that. You'd be the... Uh, us here in eastern Kentucky would, would do that without shoes on and a big old jaw of tobacco. It sounds like a good plan. I'll give it a shot. Thank you for the question, uh, Mrs. Shout. I'm sure that really was her. Thank you, Mrs. Schaub. I've got a couple. I've got a couple finance-related questions in my DMs. The first one 
came from uh, Alexander KB Barbosa. Alexander, welcome back. Thanks for the question. Uh, he wants to know the gang's opinion on companies that host mining rigs for you. So this is a crypto question. Uh, he knows that some of the guys have their own rigs. and He's just curious what their thoughts are about companies. One such company is called Compass, where you can buy and host a rig there. Uh, Andy, do you, do you have any thoughts or knowledge on this? Uh, yeah, so this has been around for a while. I mean, there's also just co-location uh, data centers and stuff like that. Uh, if it's a if it's a um, reputable company, uh, then you know go for it. the The downside to this stuff uh, is there's been plenty of companies that have kind of popped up and couldn't cut the mustard, and they failed. Uh, and then uh, some people have had their rigs and stuff kind of held hostage. Um, also, if it's not something that's local to you, you have to ship your rigs uh, to them. And, and all the associated costs and a headache with that. Um, or, you know, you're buying directly from the manufacturer and shipping there, and there's a whole set of issues there. But uh, ultimately, the question is, you know, is it, if it's a reputable company, do they have uh, better electric rates? And are their management fees um, all, all in expenses better than if you're going to do it at home? Um, and it might be a space thing, it might be an electricity thing, uh, the whole host of uh, factors of why you might consider that. But yeah, I, I've talked to lots of people who have done it um, with success, uh, but just know that those companies have to make money, so they're not going to give you the absolute bargain basement uh, prices on all that stuff. Cool. Thanks, Andy. I view it a little bit almost like the, the Bitcoin trusts themselves, which I'm invested in. I could be investing in just pure Bitcoin on Coinbase. I could own Bitcoin on Coinbase and probably get the best deal on the market or through some other uh, broker. But I own Bitcoin mutual funds because I don't really want to have to handle the wallet and passwords and all that stuff myself. I'll pay a small fee so that someone else can, can do it for me. Sounds similar similar to what this is, to this scenario. Uh, if there aren't any other thoughts on that one, I've got another question in the DMs from uh, Vincent at Lord of Lethargy. Nice, nice name, Vincent. Uh, this one's another question for you, Andy. It has to do with the answer you gave earlier about volatility versus plateauing as far as stabilization of Bitcoin's price. And based on your answer, he's asking if you view Bitcoin as uh, a currency or more as an asset like gold. Uh, I mean, I've, I've uh, shared my views on this in. Uh, multiple ways. I mean, the, the short answer is I uh, I don't know. Bitcoin is whatever um, you want it to be. It's, you know, it's uh, many things to many people. Uh, I think Bitcoin at its base layer, uh, the core code that ha as we know it today, um, that is going to be a, a an asset. Uh, it's going to be property. It's going to be a store of uh, value or at least an, um, a world reserve asset or some kind of a settlement layer. Uh, I think the currency thing, that whole piece is uh, what's built on top of Bitcoin, using Bitcoin as a settlement layer. That's things like Lightning or um, or Liquid. Um, I think all that's going to be built out in the coming decade. Uh, we're in that that portion of it. Uh, the story is infancy. Um, but yeah, there's there's a million different applications for uh, for Bitcoin, and it's it's uh, what you can build on top of it is really pretty unlimited. So it's kind of a uh, sky is the limit kind of a thing, where, uh, what your, whatever your imagination can come up with. 
Thank you, Andy. Uh, at this point, I don't have any questions in my DMs. So listeners, if you have any questions for us, feel free to DM one of us. Or if we know you, we'd be happy to give you microphone access. Uh, going around the room, do you guys have any questions from listeners that you've been sitting on? Yeah, sure. I had a, a question come in, Jesse. What uh, What do you guys think of like uh, side gigs or side hustles or any that you think that are good or are there any that uh, you think that maybe aren't worth people's time? I can take so uh, before before we get too deeply into any particular ones, I can take like a high level um, approach and say, you know, I think if you're early in your career, you know, you're in your twenties or even younger, I think instead of trying to side hustle for money really quickly, I think it's also worth exploring adding to your skill your skill stack and you know, actually learning new things rather than just trying to make money with what you already know. And I think that will pay off big time in the long run. I say I can I can mention one that I've had some success with. Uh it's something I don't do it super regularly, but um I'll hop on Craigslist every now and then. You can look at the free section or you know if you're a little more into it, you can go to whether you're looking at washer dryers, fridges, any sort of appliance, you can look for cheaper ones. But a lot of times they'll have stuff for free where people are moving or just want to get rid of stuff. And I've done it multiple times where I found furniture that was in good shape. You just drive there. Usually you got to pick it up. That's kind of the deal. So you pick up a couch or whatever, get it for free, and you can flip it for 100 150 bucks, depending on how nice it is, how big it is. But I, like I said, I don't, I don't do it super regularly, but that's one that I've done when you, know, you, can, you can find some pretty good deals in there. The... The side hustle that Adam just talked about just then is kind of my go-to answer for anybody who's like, I don't have any money to do a side hustle. I don't, uh, I can't start anything up. I, you know, I have no resources. You can literally, literally go on Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace or you name it and get stuff for free that people are getting rid of because they just don't want to deal with it. They don't want to deal with money. They just want to like put it on the curb and get rid of that perfectly good stuff or stuff that needs some cleaning or a uh, light repair. And you uh, put that stuff back on Craigslist and you sell it for a couple hundred bucks. It, it's such a great side hustle for uh, beginners who are just trying to make some extra money on the side. We can't really hear you there, Jesse. Oh, I'm sorry. Is this any better? Yep. Okay. Um, I was saying I loved your guys' answer. Uh, Adam and Andy, because it's free, right? There's no barrier to entry. I also really like Brandon's answer, where especially when you're young, you can probably get this exponential growth by investing in yourself through further education or just some sort of skill that you can build. Um, I'm interested, actually. I know I see the wealth guy in here, and the wealth guy is a big DoorDash side hustler, which we've talked a little bit on the spaces before, you know, I've shared my opinions on, on the DoorDashes and the Ubers of the world um, because it's tough. I think, you know, some data says on average, pretty hard to make money. I think the wealth guy and, and some of his, uh, some of his ilk are, are good. They found little hacks that allow them to turn a, a nice profit from their DoorDash and Uber ventures. But it's the kind of thing where I think if you get into it and you don't really know what you're doing and you're just kind of driving around and, and you don't really have a system in place, you might be spending a lot more on your car than you expect and you might not actually be netting as much money as you would think. So no matter what you choose on the side hustle path, think about your time, think about your expenses, 
and sit down and do the math afterwards and make sure you're actually making the kind of money that you hope to make. Yeah, I just see a lot more reasonable side of, of flipping the free couch for a hundred bucks than, you know, driving for a couple hours for $2 and 50 cents an hour. Uh, there's some people that can do it, but uh, it makes no sense to me. I got um, uh, Richie Rich mentioned that there's a free stuff alert app that's pretty good for finding free stuff. And I'll, I'll jump on one more time with the whole side hustle thing and say that I think uh, I've found that side hustles are kind of a um, a big time accelerator rocket fuel for your income if you do it right. Uh, but I, you know, I, I've done all, all the different things. Uh, I've done the, the, um, the you know, gig economy stuff and whatever and flipping stuff on Craigslist, whatever you name it. Uh, but now as I've kind of progressed through all of those and kind of, uh, um, you know, have the experience and whatever, uh, I've just kind of come to realize that my efforts on the side gig or side hustle should be something that has exponential growth potential. Um, and that's the downside to a lot of those things. Like, uh, you know, if you're going to be delivering food or you're going to be picking people up in Ubers or whatever, or you're going to be uh, flipping stuff, um, uh, you're, it's, it has no kind of exponential growth potential. Now, if you do flipping and you start hiring a bunch of people, well, then you can start getting there. Uh, but now I'm kind of more interested in um, building an audience online. And then uh, what can you do with that? How can you put assets online? In my case, YouTube videos. Uh, or other things? How can I put things out there into the world that are evergreen and bring me money while I sleep? Um, and that's kind of the problem with a lot of the side hustles out there, which, you know, great when you're starting out or great if it's just truly something you spend a couple hours here and there, you don't have any real uh, growth expectations. Um, but it's kind of like you plug in hours and you get out dollars like any other job. Um, so I want something where I plug in hours and I get out much more reward for the hours I put into it. That's kind of my view on it now. Yeah, um, that exponential growth potential is huge, right? You as an individual are completely limited by your 24 hours a day. And uh, so that's the natural ceiling on, on the Ubers and the Craigslist of the world. And, and speaking of the DoorDash and the, and the Uber thing, I still have it on my to-do list, uh, wealth guy, to uh, try to scour some actual data, some like large data sets to, to show that, that you guys make you know, $15, $20 an hour. Uh, for, for what it's worth, I can still only find sources from, you know, sample sizes of 300 plus that show show basically less than minimum wage. So it's it's tough. I think there are ways to do it as an individual, but on the whole, it's hard for people to make money that way. Um, any more questions going around the room? Uh, one question, I mean, I didn't. I didn't get this in a DM just now, but I pretty much get this in a DM multiple times every single week, which is, uh, you know, as a 18 to 20 something year old with no investments or anything, like where do you start? Like, what are the basics that you recommend? Got a couple. I mean, if, an, if a 20 year old came to me and knew nothing, I would ask them if they get a 401k at work. And I would point them to maximizing the, the match, getting that free money. And then I would point them to a total market stock index fund and say, just start with that and then start learning. 
right? It's the kind of thing of like, you know, you'll, you'll learn as you go. So just start this little process here of investing money, getting the free match, putting it in the stock market, and then start learning as you go. Um, after that, I might say, I might point them to a Roth IRA and tell them to try to maximize their Roth IRA and, and dump it all into stocks while they're young. How about the rest of you guys? I would say experiment, experiment early. When you have uh, in your twenties, you have tons of time to screw up multiple times. <clears throat> so instead of just investing safely in a four hundred one k, I would say shoot for the moon, do something crazy, find a coach, find a mentor, try ten different streams of income, find one that sticks, and uh, hustle your tail off, man. Uh, you can always invest later, but uh, that skill set early on will cause that uh, investing to grow exponentially. I, I love that answer. That's great. Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the things I always tell people is like, uh, it's uh, you're young, you can make mistakes. Money is not something that is impossible to get again. Uh, take some risks, be aggressive uh, with uh, how you uh, do some investments. But man, spending time uh, learning and uh, putting yourself out there and uh, meeting people and doing what uh, Shadow said and getting some coaches or some courses or some programs. I mean, there's so many possibilities. Um, and just all those things like build a mindset and a set of habits in those early years uh, that will just like set you up for the rest of your life. Can I had one more quick thing before the rest of you guys go. Only I had a thought after the fact, and especially I see uh, Coach Bloom, I see Paul in the room, and they've got some experience. I think one thing that you have to sit down with someone young is just Ask them real quick. Make sure that you understand what their goals are, what their hopes are, and what their plans are for the future. Because if, if someone came to me and they said, you know, well, I, you know, I'm trying to think of a good example. They might say, oh, my, my dad lost everything he ever had in the stock market. Well, I'm not going to tell him to go dump everything into VTSAX. Even if he's having an irrational reaction to his dad losing the money. It's still, you know, I, I would want to know that before giving some advice. And I know you guys are the same. I'm not saying you would tell someone to go dump money into some risky investment without knowing something about them first. It's just, you know, that is probably the first thing you'd want to do is understand their their goals. Off my soapbox. How about the rest of you guys? What would you tell some, a young person to do with their with their investing money? And I think it's it's really, um, I mean, if if they're just wanting to invest, but I mean, it, it just to, to maybe look at it a little bit more holistically, uh, one of the things that I've thought about a lot, uh, you know, as as I as I talk to some of my younger siblings about about money and what to do, I mean, a four hundred one k match is, is great. I think you should really take advantage of that. But but after that, you know, it's like, do you have an emergency fund, you know, at all? It's like, do you have any any extra cash? maybe trying to store that extra cash in a Roth and not to invest it, but just to put it in there and kind of use that as your emergency fund. Cause you can't get that time back. Um, you can't, you know, go back previous years and put money in a Roth. So if you have an ability to do that, I think it's, that's really smart to do. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's broad based index funds. I mean, I think it's really good sound advice. Well, and the last thing too, I just add is, especially at that age, is kind of be, you know, emphasize the point of like know where you're putting your money or have a good understanding of what it is, whether it's a 
broad-based index fund or whether you're going to take a little bit, you know, larger risk with certain cryptocurrencies and stuff. But, you know, I'm assuming at 18, 19, 20 years old, a lot of people aren't talking about index funds. They're talking about GameStop or AMC or things along those lines. So I would just say, you know, be careful of where you're getting your information, be weary of the hype and just kind of dig a little deeper before you start putting money certain places. A tag on to what Dave was saying, you know, um, the well, not the tag on to give the other side of that, maybe uh, the challenge that a little bit, uh, you know, I I am someone who certainly got a late start into finance, um, getting our finances uh, correct, had a lot of debt uh, going into my 30s. Uh, and now I'm a millionaire, um, just a few short years later. Um, but, uh, you know, starting to get my finances on track. Uh, when I when I was 29 or 30, uh, started maxing out that Roth IRA, doing that stuff. Um, you know, I've been doing those things, but you know, placing my bets that I have, my asymmetric bets like uh, Bitcoin, uh, it is you know far outperformed all the safe traditional uh, stuff by many multiples. So uh, you know, so now I kind of look back and I'm like, what if I'd put uh, all that Roth IRA money into uh, Bitcoin as well? What if I'd uh, you know, bought more um, property here in Austin. What if I'd done some of these things that have like far out outweighed? Um, so, you know, not looking back with regrets, but I'm just, you know, I sometimes I just think about these things to challenge the status quo a little bit and uh, wonder um, you know, if some of those things out there aren't uh, safe in their own right. Great answers, guys. I think we probably have time for maybe like one or two more questions. Now, I, I don't have any questions. Yeah, I have, go ahead. I have two good ones over here. So the first Perfect. question is from Dev, uh, from Dev, and he uh, he said he's 32 years old, and he says, should I buy one single home or two small houses, one being a rental property? And he's saying it's my first home ownership. So I, I guess I'll, I'll I'll start. I I personally love the idea that. If you can buy two. I, I kind of like that idea a lot more. Uh, honestly, the ability to live in one and be able to rent another, I think is, to me, more attractive than just owning one property that you're you're living in. What do you guys think? Yeah, I, I would think it comes down to, you know, how many people you have living at home. And if everyone can comfortably live in the one while you own and rent a second one, from a finance, from a spreadsheet point of view, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I'm not sure I'd want to cram a family of five into a 1,500 square foot house while owning a second 1,500 square foot house, knowing that I could have bought a 2,500 square foot house that fit us all comfortably. But if the number of people makes sense for the for the two house solution, then I like it. Well, I think the two house solution really sets you up for getting into real estate investing. Um, one, you're you're learning uh, how to, to manage another property, and then that money you're making it really is either going to offset the cost of your first house, or you're going to save that up and put it towards more units. On top of that, you're getting a lot of the tax savings um, from that rental unit, and uh, all kinds of tax savings are, are involved, including depreciation. So, from a financial aspect and from a business aspect, I think you would be a fool pick one house over two if you were able to live in the one comfortably.
yeah, I, I don't have uh, any of the real estate um, experience that Shadow does, but I will say everybody I've ever talked to um, who's been in that situation or has chosen just a more uh, standard, typical uh, house hacking situation, like buying a duplex and living in one half and renting out the other, they've always uh, said that uh, that was an incredible decision. Uh, so multiple all the way. Cool. Great answers. Uh, Roger, do you have another question you said in your DMs? Yeah, this one's actually 401k related. Um, so it's from actually from Richie Rich. So he says, what are your experiences with only contributing to your 401k match and then investing in, say, a taxable versus continuing 401k, contributing more up to the max? Um, my, my two cents on that is um, with regards, so definitely the 401k match, I think absolutely no brainer to take that. It doesn't even matter if you have a horrible 401k with a lot of fees. Um, free money is free money. Um, where it gets tricky, in my opinion, with regards to 401k and continuing, like going further past the, the 401k match is finding out the fees, the administrative fees that your 401k is charging, right? And these sometimes are a little trickier to find. Um, typically, what I have noticed is that the smaller the employer, typically the more they charge in fees. The larger the employer, typically the fees are more beneficial to employers, as in maybe the company even pays for all the fees themselves. Um, aside from that, um, if I if if me personally, if I had a bad 401k with a lot of fees, my order of operations would still be 401k match, and then I would go into IRA. Well, well, let's assume I had an HSA. It would be 401k match, HSA, IRA, and then after that, I would I would be doing taxable. And and that's just my um, my personal preference. I I think that it gets overlooked a lot with regards to like tax drag. And I understand that taxable accounts are more flexible, but also time horizon as far as what you plan on doing with the money is a is a factor as well. Um, in, in what you do. Um, I, but if we're talking, I'm planning on saving for retirement, then I think it makes a lot of logical sense to use retirement accounts to get you there, considering also that there's ways to take money out uh, out of 401ks, for example, at an earlier rate, for example, the rule 55, which basically means that when you turn 55, if you leave your current employer, that existing 401k on that employer would be accessible to you. There's also the abilities of doing like Roth conversion ladders, um, 72, 72T distributions. And those, there's there's multiple ways to get your money out. So a lot of times on Twitter, you always hear people say, oh, my, my money's stuck there until I'm 59 and a half. And that's not really the case. You just have to do a little more planning. It's not as easy as going to your taxable account and, you know, selling a stock or, or, or a fund and getting the the money right there. That's that's my two cents on it. Thanks, Roger. Um, any other thoughts on the on the question? I mean, just a just a different perspective. I mean, if you're wanting to start your own business. I think, I mean, Roger said it, if you're going to plan, if you're going for retirement, yeah, I think you should really consider retirement accounts, but 
consider your tax bracket, consider what state you're in, um, you know, what, what your long-term plans are. If you can try to forecast out your, your taxes, I think that's, that's good and helpful. Um, but you know what, what are you going to use that money for? What, what's your plan for that money? I think you have to have a really specific idea of, of, of what you're, what you're going to do to really make a good sound decision. Exactly. And it's like, that, that's the hard part too. It's like, I, I know on Twitter, everything's like no nuance. Right. But the reality is that making money decisions, you know, are not necessarily black and white. Right. There's a lot of factors that go in. Um, but I, I guess what I, I get annoyed about Twitter online in general is like when I see people like, oh, it's all taxable and it's like completely no nuance. Like that's what I'm going to do because it gives me that freedom. But it's like there's there's a lot of stuff to consider and think about um, when you're making those decisions. And the same thing with putting money in, let's say, 401k IRAs. Like what, what's your goal? What's your purpose doing that? Your decision for doing it. So I think you kind of hit it on the nail, David. Something you just touched on there, Roger, that I've, I've written about before. And the example I used was Dave Ramsey. So Dave Ramsey has these rules, right? These concrete rules that if you violate them, you're out of the club. But they're easy to understand. They are usually easy to follow. And for some people, they're pretty effective. So it's the whole no nuance thing, right? Dave, Dave Ramsey essentially has no nuance when it comes to, say, debt. Um, but if you can get people on board and you can actually affect their lives positively, is the no nuance route actually better than saying, well, here's this 15 minute explanation with nuance. Meanwhile, 90% of the audience is falling asleep and, and don't get their answer. It's something I certainly struggle with. I don't have the right answer, but I'm just curious what any of your guys' thoughts are on, you know, how much nuance is too much nuance and how often should you just say like, Suck it up, cupcake. Go buy VTSAX and move on with your life. I think Dave's audience in particular, like judging by the people that call in and have questions, are the type of people who need somebody to tell them, look, here's what you do. Don't ask questions. Just do it. I think so. For me, I don't personally agree with his approach all the time, but I think the people that he's really catering to and the people that actually listen and call into his show need that. That's why he he's so successful. No nuance sells. That's why it works well on Twitter. If you add <laughs> nuance to your tweets on Twitter, well, get ready for them to get no likes, no retweets, no comments. Uh, yeah, obviously everything has some nuance, and you definitely have to dig into that to some degree for your own decisions. Um, but uh, yeah, that's why things like you know. Ramsey's uh, book full of his you know, rules for money is successful because it's a hard set way to live and that uh, attracts you know some people and it's you know no denying it's very it's very effective if you're in a bad place with money um, but hopefully I hope my hope for most people is that after they you know get out of the bad situation that they open their eyes to maybe some better advice out there some more reasonable advice out there than that guy <laughs> yeah, definitely not a Dave Ramsey fan, but I, I think it's it's I think no nuance is really good to help make, make people think, um, and, it can, and it draws out. That's pro, that's why I work on Twitter, right? Because people comment on it, and they, they they bring their thoughts and whatever preconceived notions that they have to any topic. I tweet a lot about using debt, and the no debt crowd always comes at me, and it's like, well, you know, but they will actually me all the time. 
which is fine. You know, uh, it's it's good to to kind of interact with them and, and at least get them to to paint to to challenge their assumptions. You know, I think that's that's really helpful there. I think if you're sitting down and having a one-on-one conversation, uh, that, that that's when, or having a long-form discussion like this, that's where nuance is helpful. And sorry, I forgot to mention after Roger was uh, stating his case there that. Uh, if you're putting money into a 401k, you are throwing your money away. Thank, thank you, thank you, Andy, for that. I appreciate that. You should, you should tweet that. It will get us like a million likes. <laughs> Just kidding, gang. Just kidding. <laughs> well, I will say uh, two, two things. One is a, a fun fact, which is Dave Ramsey actually does not like index funds and ETFs. I don't know if you guys knew that. Yeah, he <laughs> loves his mutual yeah, funds he used yeah. to sell and get a kickback on. That is exactly right. Yeah. That is exactly right. He wants his users to do actively managed mutual funds that he gets a, basically a commission from. He's the gumroad guy of actively managed mutual funds. He's um, a boomer. <laughs> boomer and, gumroad. And the, second, the second thing is a complete selfless, selfish plug. So all your listeners, if you just Google Dave Ramsey Sith Lord, as in like Star Wars, Dave Ramsey, Sith Lord, you'll find the article where I accuse him of being a Sith because only the Sith deal in absolute. So that's that. Sorry. Does, uh, does he offer uh, affiliate uh, commission? Because I'd like to start selling those mutual funds on my Twitter. Get me I, on board. I think that means you're going over to the dark side, Andy. Uh, don't knock it till you try it, man. What Darth Vader said. Um, let's see. Uh, got some DMs coming in. Okay, had a had a funny comment from Richie Rich. Thank you, Richie. Um, any of you guys have any questions out there? Uh, I have one. Uh, that I just got. This is from Mike. He said, "How much cash do each of you keep on hand, non-emergency fund?" Uh, non-emergency fund and. Okay, and cash on hand doesn't mean like physically on hand, right? Is that how we're answering this? I have a sense. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I want to know how much each of us have just in a sweaty wad just shoved into our pants pocket. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll, I'll answer. So I don't have anything set on my emergency fund, or uh, if I do, I always, you know, move it over into dollar cost averaging investments. I keep a pretty large emergency fund though. So um, like I mentioned earlier, I, we have a six person family. Uh, my wife stays at home. Um, so, you know, I, I keep six months of expenses. It's probably a lot compared to some of the other guys here. Um, but, you know, just from a, from a, from a safety of family standpoint, you know, I, I keep a, I keep a pretty large one. Uh, I keep about, uh, about a month's worth of cash on hand uh, just at home. Um, and that's just, you know, just in case stuff gets really bad, I guess shit hits the fan. But um, yeah, that's 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 what I do. I keep um, enough for the next round of bill payments, and like I have a small, relatively small vacation fund. But that's it for me. I don't keep any cash really in the checking account. Besides that, yeah, I keep uh, I keep enough to cover expenses for the month or so. Um, and, uh, beyond that, I keep nothing in a bank. Um, if, uh, for my emergency fund, uh, that is in a, um, 
That's either between BlockFi or Celsius and stable coins earning 8% plus. And uh, anything beyond my three-month-ish buffer, it's just invested. Yeah, I'm pretty similar at three months. And then I like the month to cover to make sure I'm covering all my, all my bills and stuff like that. And then three months emergency. That's what I do. Yeah, ours is pretty minimal as well. Once expenses are covered, there's not a whole lot of uh, leeway. The one thing that is a little different for us right now is we do have some, like I mentioned earlier, some of those wedding payments. Um, so we've been kind of saving cash. It's not really emergency fund money. It's just kind of sitting in a high interest online saving account right now, waiting for the uh, the invoices to come through. So there's, we have a couple grand right now, but that's all, you know, dedicated to the wedding. It just, those expenses haven't come through yet. What's the, uh, what's that high interest rate? Uh, I think it's, what is it, 0. 0.5, 0. 0.0? That's the Capital One online. I think it's 0. 0.5. That's that's criminal they can even call that high yield. <laughs> I know. I think they use it just as comparison to like a brick and mortar bank. Oh, we're high compared to these guys, even though it's still just outrageous how low it is. Exactly, yeah. On a, on a related note, uh, Dante Weigel just wrote a question that said, what's your guys' opinion on the safety of BlockFi and Celsius since there's no FDIC insurance? And my personal opinion real quick is that I wouldn't put my emergency fund there. I would put non-emergency cash there and feel okay about it. But I keep my six-month emergency fund in a pretty poor high-yield savings account just like Adam. But... Uh, uh, or yeah, Andy or Dave, what are your thoughts on BlockFi and Celsius? Yeah, so I have about half of my six-month emergency fund uh, in in those. Um, I think it's I think they're 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 fairly safe. Um, is it riskier than a bank account? Absolutely. Um, you get compensated fairly very well with that from a yield standpoint. You know, I've looked into the uh, all the players um, in in that industry and what they're using that cash for and what the, um, what some of those trades are um, and what the lending practices are. So, you know, I think you have like a few buckets. You have one, you have, they, they lend out to folks that have Bitcoin. They don't want to sell it. Uh, they want to, they, they take an over, they use an over collateralized loan um, to, to lend out dollars and they need dollars to lend out to that individual. So that's like one use case. And then, Another use case is they tr they lend out to hedge funds, and a lot of times that that'll be uh, maybe not an over collateralized over collateralized loan, but a collateralized loan. So you know they they give a dollar, and then the um, lending operation gives them back you know one dollar, um, and maybe a different cryptocurrency or something. And that's because they're trading in futures markets, um, which is in crypto is they're, they're trading right now in something called Contango. If you want to go look that up, that's Essentially, it's a it's a perfectly hedged trade where they can make a really good margin at. Um, so I think it's safe. Um, is it you know? But you have to make sure you have good security, you have good two-factor authentication. Uh, I use a few different apps. I use Celsius, um, Voyager, and Gemini are the three I use for um, for stable coins. Um, but at the end of the day, they, they honestly all lend to very similar. Um, but that's that would be a whole probably um, spaces at some point on and the specific details on what's going on and, and is it safe? Do I think it's safe? I think it's safe enough to put a fair amount of cash in there. 
and jumping on that, uh, if you have uh, any qualms about it, uh, there's several great uh, podcasts out there with the uh, CEOs and founders of these companies talking. Uh, and they're very open and transparent. And that's where I get a lot of my comfort um, and the behind the scenes of their operations. Also, several of them have third party uh, insur- uh, insurers. Um, and the majority of the, the ones I prefer uh, keep all the funds in cold storage. Uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of safety measures that they do take, um, even though they do not have the FDIC um, insurance. And one of the things I will say, uh, I'm I'm very comfortable putting that kind of money um, in that account because, one, uh, I don't want my money exposed to inflation in a standard savings account. Uh, I want those higher than usual interest rates and um, uh, higher rewards. Uh, but also, everyone's situation is different. Uh, my cash flow is many times my monthly expenses. If I lose one or two of my income sources, uh, it's not the end of the world. I still have money coming in. So it's it's really a pretty strange situation for me to actually be touching my emergency money. But if all you have is just your nine to five, your standard, your one income source, well, then that is maybe a very different conversation for you and a different thought process. Thank you, guys. Those were two terrific answers. I think we're going to go to Shadow for a very quick question, and then we're going to end with a guest question from Paul. Yeah, so I got a question in the DMs real quick from Ryan Froge at Froge Financial. And uh, I think one person can answer this well, and you guys decide who that is. But it says, is it a good idea to withdraw from a Roth IRA for your first home? Roger, you're a IRA 401k guy. What do you think? I mean, it's something you can do. I I don't love the idea personally. Um, I when I when I first um, was looking to buy my first home, that was something I considered, and I just decided against it. Um, and personally, I just decided against it just for the fact that I I really look at retirement accounts as for retirement, and I felt that I was mixing the goals. In that case, like I know I could use that money for something else, but what was the goal of the money when I put it in? The goal of the money was for retirement. So I decided that that's why I didn't do it. And uh, I I would agree with uh, what Roger just said, but add that even though I agree with that, I am somebody who has dipped into those things for various reasons. So I can definitely see why you would do it. And I think I've made good decisions when I did that. But the other thing I would say too, and uh, uh, and Shadow I'm sure would say a million more things on this topic than me, but um, as a first time homeowner, there are so many um, loans available to you where you can do much reduced um, down payments and stuff to where maybe it's not a requirement to dip into stuff like that, where the savings goal to hit those uh, down payments might be more reasonable for you. So definitely explore all your options and programs out there uh, before you start thinking about those things. Thanks, guys. Good answers. And uh, with that, I think we had one more question. Is that right, Roger? Were you going to set up Paul with yeah, microphone access? I am doing it right now. Awesome. Hey, Paul. Hey, how are you, Jesse? Great. Good to hear you. Good to hear you. What's going on? What are you thinking tonight? Oh, not much. Just it's it's fun to listen instead of talk. You know what I'm saying? I, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I uh, 
I always like when people talk uh, about finances and the futures and I get a giggle because when I'm in the classroom talking to my 17, 18 year old students, all this is great advice, but most of them could care less about retirement. That's that's the disconnect I have to try to get through to them, right? Because the years pass through fast. Yeah, I, I was in that boat, I think. I don't know about the rest of you guys listening in and, and the rest of you guys on the speaking side, but I liked the stock market game senior year, but I certainly wasn't, um, certainly didn't care about Roths and, and 401ks at that point in life. But maybe if someone said, hey, if you start saving at 22, you'll be a millionaire by 40 or 45. That might have been the message that would have perked me up. And I, I feel like those kind of really numbers-based messages probably get people's attention best. Interested to hear what the rest of you guys think. What do you, yeah, they, what do you think, Paul? Yeah, if I could just hit, they do. That's, that's what worked this year when I did Financial Fridays in class. But then as soon as most of them started real TD Ameritrade accounts, whether they were custodial with their parents or on their own if they were 18, boy, they get caught real quick into the trading and the crypto. Well, not crypto on TD Ameritrade, but they get caught up real quick in all the short-term stuff. And that's the balance I personally try to find. But showing long-term numbers actually does help a lot, yes. Mm -hmm. I, I agree. Mm -hmm. I mean, for me, that was one of the things I, I had someone show me like what, what compounding can do. And, and I honestly, like I, I had, I had the privilege of doing, of working in a, in a field that I enjoy. So like working for me is fun. And then, um, the ability to, you know, essentially use a 401k as that, okay, I'm going to put money in here. I can see why putting it here is important. And that's kind of what helped me. Um, but um, yeah, I, I think when you're first starting off, it's it's trickier, right? Because you 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 can definitely get lost in in that short term sight. Onward and upward, though. I think there's uh, I think there's a way to continue to reach these uh, you know how do I reach these kids meme. I think there's a way to reach these kids if they want it, if they want to learn. And I think some of it, Paul, and you you probably know better than us, being a high school teacher. There are some things that kids don't necessarily want to learn at 16, 17, 18. There are plenty of things that I didn't want to learn then, and I'm sure the listeners can, can relate that they didn't want to learn certain things then. But eventually, you do want to learn those things, and, and you kind of have to take it on your own at your own speed at whatever age that is. But if they can hearken back to something that they, uh, that they saw in high school and at least go back to that, to that memory and say, oh, yeah, I, I know there was a way I could have learned this then. Let me go back and find it now. That's not a half bad uh, resolution to, to the problem. Hundred percent. You know, even even if you're out of sight, it doesn't necessarily mean you're out of mind. If you if you spend enough time with them, you know they'll they'll grow up and get it eventually. But it's still worth fighting the fight, as you guys all know. Excellent. Yeah. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for chiming in. Thanks for those thoughts. And with that. Thank you all for listening in tonight. We, we had a great time. I had a great time. I think I can speak for the rest of the guys here. Um, thank you again. Give us all a follow. We hope you tune in in future weeks and, and listen to these recordings. We record every week, so if you miss one, we put up recordings that uh, go out as a podcast. And with that, the floor is open. Guys, the floor is yours.
guys. I see some regular people in here. Just want to say I appreciate you. Uh, I see you, and uh, I'll see you guys next week. Yeah, thank you all for coming. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you for the questions. It's always a blast. Good night, fellas. Uh, everyone, thank you for tuning in. Uh, if you uh, have any uh, suggestions for future topics, DM any of us. We'd appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening, everybody, and good talking to you guys. Have a good night. Let's do it.